0: What a lot of people do is they think of consumption as, I'm going to go on Twitter and learn a little bit about a lot of things. Instead, you want to learn a lot about a little.
1: You're listening to The Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Maya Angelou. You can't use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. My guest today, Alan Gannett, is one of the sharpest thinkers in the creative field. Alan's the founder of Track Maven, a marketing platform used by top companies such as GE and the NBA. He's also the best selling author of The Creative Curve and a sought after keynote speaker. Alan, welcome. It's great to have you join us on the Elevate Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, man. And that's a great quote. I like that quote. I want to get that on a poster.
1: Like I have some homework now. <laughs> there actually should be a site where you can do that. I don't even. Oh yeah, like poster it's like the, quote site. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. It's like you know old school memes.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So uh, I like to start at the beginning. Um, love to hear, like, what was childhood like for you? Were you were you a, you know, particularly with people that are creative, uh, don't tend to follow the the traditional school and path. And I also heard this story about you somehow you got on Wheel of Fortune, too. So I'd love to <laughs> love to hear about that.
0: Yeah. So um, I grew up in New Jersey, and I was an only child. My parents uh, were, you know, very divorced. Um, and I so I spent a, and my parents both worked, you know, full time jobs. And so I spent a lot of time just like sort of like entertaining myself and all that stuff. And not like in a sad way, just in the sort of that is what it was sort of way. Yeah. And so I think I always sort of had a side of me that was very like exploratory and curious and like trying to sort of amuse myself. And so, you know, I've sort of throughout my life, whether child or teenager, always been sort of interested in like understanding how things work, deconstructing them. And this has ranged from like now with writing, you know, the book and then, you know, the past, like I had this moment where I thought it'd be sort of amusing. I was like, I should get on a game show. Like that feels like something that is totally possible. How hard could it be? And so I spent like all this energy, like Applying to all these different game shows. And then I got called to an audition for Wheel of Fortune. And so I watched like I had never watched an episode of Wheel of Fortune. And so I watched all of these episodes of Wheel of Fortune. And I was like, oh, they just want someone who's willing to make fun of themselves and can enunciate clearly. So at like age 18, I took the train into New York and is 18 I got, the minimum. They have like a teen edition, but like yes. who wants to apply for that? So I, right. 18 is the minimum for the adult edition. Okay. And so I like, I like trained into New York. And I had a bunch of espresso, and I was like, "Hi, my name is Alan. I am so excited." And then the thing I was like, "What can I do to embarrass myself?" I was like, "I'm I had at the time a higher pitched voice, and I was like, I'm gonna do an Elmo impression. So I was like, "My name is Alan, and I can do a great Elmo impression." And then I proceeded to do my Elmo impression, which I will not reenact because I cannot do it anymore. And They were like, oh, it's so funny. And I like, they also make you do a quiz, and I like failed the quiz. I was so bad at solving puzzles. And so, but I got on the show because that's what they wanted. And uh, I was on the show and I lost uh, terribly to a woman named, I think it was Joan from Alexandria, Virginia, who won like $60,000 and just like clobbered me. Um, And so, yeah, that was my experience in Wheel of Fortune.
1: So what did you take from that experience?
0: I think it was a good example of like all of this stuff. And I, I tend to think in general that all of this stuff that we look at and we think of as maybe out of reach or part of some larger institution or construct or really just human institutions. Yeah. And I've since then sort of been really focused in my career around deconstructing things, understanding how they work. And so the company I ran for six and a half years was all around understanding marketing data. So what stories would resonate with customers and the book, the creative curve is all about deconstructing creativity. So why do we have this version of creativity in our heads? that's so magical. So sort of, you know, semi-divine, is that actually true? And then breaking down how we can actually learn to become more creative. And so That's become like a real focus area for me is this idea of sort of deconstructing things.
1: So what is the creative myth in your mind?
0: Yeah, I mean, I say, I call it the inspiration myth. And I say there's four attributes. So when we think of creativity, and by the way, this is a Western culture thing. So there's actually different concepts of creativity in Eastern culture. And our notion of creativity today has actually even changed over the last thousands of years. So the, the inspiration myth of creativity is one is that it's an individual act. Right? We talk a lot about Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or JK Rowling, these people who are sort of titans. They do it all themselves, yeah. which we can talk more about. That's BS. The second is that for those people, it's easy. Right? It just—it comes to them. They have this magical ability. Third is that even though it's easy, it can be overwhelming. Right? We talk about getting in states of flow, sort of being like roiled with inspiration. And fourth and finally, these people are just a bit weird. Like Steve jobs is a jerk. Look at Kanye's Twitter. Like they're just a bit different. And that is sort of part of this mythology, which actually by the way is a pretty destructive part of it. Cause then we're like, well, I'm not weird or I don't think I'm weird. So am I not creative? And there's this whole negative flip side to it too.
1: I'm guessing it's a little like baseball too, right? Where I always say like in terms of new ideas where, you know, you hit 300 and it gets you in the hall of fame with a lot of these people, even the geniuses or whatever, I mean, some of these things must have been, there must have been, I mean, we just don't see the 999 failure disaster ones, right?
0: hundred percent. I mean, and the thing is, this is true in almost any any field. I mean, you look at actors, you know, so many actors who made it have been trying for years before yeah. that. And it's only once we're like, oh, they got in this show and now they like broke out. They were like, oh, wow, this person came out of nowhere. And it's like, no, they've been auditioning and doing off-Broadway shows for 10 years and you just don't see it. And so... As humans, we have these cognitive biases that are really interesting.
1: You know, another thing I think that is probably stifling creativity, I've written about this recently. I have a daughter who's a junior, so is starting in the sort of college apparatus and testing and seeing all this stuff. And I'm realizing and having just watched the Varsity Blues thing and that movie, The Race to Nowhere, like it's all about getting everything right. The whole school system has been like, everyone in the classroom is trying to get the same answer, and that's the only right answer. And that seems to be a destruction of the creative process. The,
0: the education <laughs> system in America is totally flawed in terms of where the future is going. So if you think yeah. about where the education system came from, you know a lot of what we do today is sort of modeled on you know, stuff from the last 100 years where people were trying to train for these sort of white-collar jobs, right? They were yeah. um, high-skill but repetitive, is the way I would put it. Those jobs are the jobs, like accounting, legal. There's a ton of automation disruption coming through AI and machine learning. And like that's not going to go away. So if you think about what is the most future-proof set of skills, it's creative skills. Those are the skills which are going to have the most long-lasting ability in careers. LinkedIn does a study every year. They ask employers, what are the top hard skills you're looking for? What are the top soft skills? Creativity is almost always the top soft skill. I don't like it being categorized as soft skill. I think that's total fooey. But like... It is in their minds. So clearly people get that. But the education system is still, you know, learn how to memorize, learn how to be good at tests, all things that would make you a great accountant, or maybe <laughs> even a great management consultant.
1: Great test. Day. I a joke with my daughter. I'm like, I don't know anyone that takes tests for a living, just so you know. <laughs> totally. I mean, this is and this is one of the things you know, we can
0: talk about, but I talk in the book about IQ tests and how IQ tests have a really gnarly history. But the issue with IQ tests is that they test you on how good you are at IQ tests. That's what they yeah. test you on, full stop, period. There's all these studies that show that success is not correlated with your IQ past a very sort of basic threshold. And so like, why do we do this? Why do we obsess over this? Well, as a society, we're trying to sort of bucket people. We're trying to move people into the right. system. We're trying to create sort of order from disorder. But if you think about the future and where the world is going, a lot of the most exciting things are going to happen in the sort of disorder side of the column.
1: And so like, where are people going to be taught that? Do they have to opt out of the system or the rat race or where are they going to get this in a system that is just, re- you know, rewarding, getting the right answer? I mean, yeah. you know, one of the things that I've realized, and it's amazing to me, I couldn't get into the schools that I went to and all this stuff. I mean, people are afraid like a single B for some of these high achieving kids oh, will, yeah. will knock you out so of, stressful. will knock you out of a top tier school if that's what you wanted. Right. And so You're not going to take risks. And so if you're not going to take risks, you are not going to take chances. And I mean, that's all tied to creativity. So I'm not sure where where it's going to be taught.
0: (laughs) I think there'll be a reckoning. And I think we saw a mini version of this with COVID where people are questioning the value of school where it's like, wait, I'm going to go to Zoom and like do all that sort of stuff. Is that really worth it? And so I think there'll be a reckoning. I think probably some external event will probably force it again. But at some point, I mean, the education system right now It's flawed in sort of a K 12. College is really problematic in terms of how it's not preparing people for what the workforce of the future is going to look like. So I think we'll have a reckoning and I don't think it'll be pretty. Like I think it'll be hard and there's going to be a lot of people who are not careful get left behind. And so I do think that the world of the future is going to be a better world. And I do think we'll solve these problems. But I think a lot about the transitions and how how people are going to be brought alongside. And I worry we're not going to do a good job of that.
1: Uh, you know, you said something that made me think about, you know, teamwork and, and, and sort of team creativity. And, and my, I have my son, my youngest son is very extroverted. He's always doing his homework with other people. He's doing it. And we're trying to get, you know, you got to focus and pay attention. And then one day I was like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Like may, maybe actually, like I'm trying to think about like how much of my work is with team or otherwise, like maybe that's. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, okay. sales, I should, is, yeah. sales is the
0: number one career in the United States. Yeah. Sales. But there's like, I think I looked last time, it's like there's nine colleges with a sales program. Yeah. So what are we doing?
1: But maybe group work is probably a lot more creative. People build off each other than it is, you know, sitting there trying to fumble to get to the right thing yourself.
0: Totally agree. And I think think those are the things where, you know, if we wanted to have an entire society of people who are good at being quiet and taking tests, then our education system as it is, is doing a
1: great job. So if you were in the framework of what you've you know written about and studied like if you were teaching a class today like how would you teach creativity how would you foster creativity if you were a parent yeah. h- how would you do this as a formative developmental thing
0: so there's a long answer to this so i'll i'll, I'll hit on a couple <laughs> points that i think yeah. are sort of relevant or interesting one is we know that open-mindedness is of the big five personality traits is the one that's most correlated to creativity. Oh, we're screwed then. Oh, well, the thing uh, is though, is open-mindedness <laughs> is also nurturable. So it is something you can get better at. And the key so way- So
1: you, you were screwed if it's by the 40, it's just, you yeah, know- Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> exactly. But as kids- You know, the
0: way to make your kids more open-minded is exposure, right? So exposing them to different things, new things, different types of people, different
1: locations. Opposite ideologies. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. And so open-mindedness is really important. And it's something that luckily we can help kids get better at. And I actually think adults can make a lot of progress on that too. I've seen that with people
1: in my life. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you wanna find quality professionals that are right for the role. To post your job for free terms and conditions apply so So this is where social media is a huge problem because it's just showing them the stuff that they already is like what they have right
0: yeah and so like you know one thing i always suggest people is you know whatever your side political spectrum is follow people on the other side of that so like if you looked at who i follow on twitter there are some people you'd see where you might be like what? and it's like i'm following them because it's helpful for me to understand yeah. and, you know it builds understanding and it builds empathy even if i don't agree even if i disagree violently i guess you can't use the word violently in terms of politics yeah, anymore yeah, yeah. so i take that back <laughs> um but like so that's i think really interesting and then the other thing is that so much of creativity happens in moments of silence so there's all this interesting research on how basically creativity happens in our right hemisphere and it sort of happens right below our level of consciousness, whereas our left hemisphere is very active, very logical, very straightforward. And that happens, that type of processing happens above our level of consciousness. So we're aware of it. This is why you have all the
1: shower ideas.
0: Ding, ding, ding. So the thing, the reason why you have ideas in the shower is not that the shower tile is inspiring, although I'm sure you did a great job, is <laughs> that those are moments when there's quiet. It's also when we talk about, you know, Steve Jobs would go on long walks. It's why traditionally, we talk about drugs and alcohol being tied to creativity. These are all things that suppress left hemisphere activations. But like the joke I always make is like, you don't have to do drugs, kids, you can go on a walk. And so yeah. one of the things that's really important is if you're a parent in the sort of generation of, you know, my friend Nir Eyal wrote this great book on distraction, yeah. and he has this term pings, dings, and rings. And so like, I think if you're, if you're living in the era of pings, dings, and rings, you have to teach your kids to also have experiences around silence and find things that they like to do where silence is a key. And that doesn't have to be meditation, doesn't have to be walks. It could be going on runs, whatever it is. Everyone who wants to be creative has to have a practice that is meditative. Does not have to be meditation. I don't like meditating. It's just
1: alone with your thoughts. Yes. Meditation, you're supposed to be not thinking, but you just need to be alone with your thoughts. I mean, I think people are scared of being alone with their thoughts, but that's- Yeah, of course. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and like for me, it's walks or like going to the gym. And so like a lot of times if I go to the gym, I won't listen to music because I'm just thinking and I'm taking notes on my phone and that's fun and, you know, it's interesting. So you just have to find whatever that thing is you know, for you. And COVID, I think, has been hard for some people because they used to have that in the form of their commute. And now, you know, you're living with your whole family and you're working and there's just not as much time for silence.
1: This episode is brought to you by Stello Mint. We're living in an era of chronic stress and anxiety, and the pandemic has only made things worse. This has left millions of us trying to figure out how to cope with pressures at work and life. And one of the reasons I love doing the podcast is to share tips to help you manage stress and burnout, and the team at Stello are doing the same. Powered by CBD, Stello mints are a fast and simple way to feel calmer and clearer throughout your day, even when juggling tasks. Each tin contains 30 mints, and they come in three bold flavors, peppermint, lemon, and matcha. I've been trying the peppermint flavor and they really taste great. My wife has been enjoying them as well. And now for a limited time, you can get 20% off Stella Mints. Just go to stellomints.com and use the code elevate. That's S-T-E-L-L-O, mints.com and use coupon code elevate for 20% off. So one thing I I read that you said that you think having a big part of the capacity for creativity is consuming a lot of relevant content. Can you explain that and sort of how you've applied that in your own career? Like what, what, how do you consume? What does it look like?
0: So basically for the book, what I did is I looked at three domains. So I looked at the history of creativity throughout time. So, you know, you're going back to the Greeks, how do we conceive of creativity? Oh, the science around creativity. So looking at studies from psychology, neuroscience, anthropology, sociology, and third, I interviewed about 25 living creative greats. So these were Oscar winners, Tony Award winners, billionaires, uh, Michelin star chefs, like a very eclectic set of creative achievers. And what I did is I basically found what were the common things they did that they credit with nurturing their creativity and explaining the science of why they work. And so one of the ones that most surprised me was I think oftentimes we think of Creating and consumption as in opposition to each other, right? Creators create, consumers consume. Active, passive. The thing is that what I found is that to a person, I interviewed these twenty-five achievers. To a person, they were all insane consumers of their niche. They went so deep. They listened to every single jazz record if they were a jazz musician. If they you know did a machine learning startup, they would know everything about every machine learning article that had come out. They went very, very, very deep. And the thing which is also interesting is that usually their story went something like this. In childhood, they had some period of intense consumption. So like Ted Sarandos is now co-CEO of Netflix for, I think, 20 years. He was chief content officer before that. I interviewed him for my book and he told me the story about how when he was 18, he worked at a video rental store and he had decided he was going to watch every single movie in the store because he didn't want to do his homework, basically. And he credits that with really setting the foundation for him of understanding. Something
1: your parents would scream at you, but makes you very qualified to run Netflix. Exactly.
0: And so Quentin Tarantino, who I did not interview, actually has the same story. He also started his career at a video rental store. Nina Jacobson, the legendary producer, I interviewed her. She started her career as a script reader for a big studio executive. She would just read all the scripts. And that's how she learned stories and storytelling. What was interesting is that those people don't stop the consumption after that initial burst. So what they did that's unique and the reason why their careers long lasted in part is that they keep consuming huge amounts of content. So I asked Ted Sarandos, we're like in his private office, there's a guy who, you know, flies in the Netflix corporate jet, you know, he's a busy dude, and I was like, "Okay, well like how much TV do you watch these days?" He's like, "Yeah, 3 to 4 hours a day." And I was like, "What?" You know, it, that was just mind blowing to me. But I kept finding that same number, you know, three to five hours a day, roughly, of how much time those people spent consuming content in their narrow vertical.
1: So, narrow, not why? Because I once read a thing right. saying the most creative and best chefs had low dissociative borders, like they would combine mm-hmm. things that other people wouldn't think about. Combining, So I, I, yeah. I think that's
0: a great question. Like what is narrow? Like to me, if you're a chef, exploring other ingredients is narrow, yeah. right? Exploring other foods is narrow it's sort of in that food realm. What a lot of people do is they think of consumption as I'm going to go on Twitter and learn a little bit about a lot of things. Yeah. Instead, you want to learn a lot about a little. And that's really important because it also is what feeds your right hemisphere. So if you think about your right hemisphere sort of connecting the dots, right. you have to have the dots to connect.
1: You're, ma- you're, you're making, you're like an integrator. You're making new and better connections out of things in your industry and seeing patterns and opportunities that other people aren't seeing. 100%.
0: Yeah. Inspiration is something that you can be intentional about. And there's a reason why the most successful creatives are all massive consumers. It's so important.
1: Well, there's also, you know, there's timing too, right? And and being way too early on something or being late, you know, or both, you know, understanding when a market is coming to your solution is probably really important. A hundred
0: percent. So the secondary benefit of consumption that I talk about in the book is this idea of timing. So when I think of creativity, I actually think creativity is three elements. I think it's timing, craft, and distribution. So a lot of times we just talk about the craft part of it, right? Are you a talented painter? But if I'm a very talented painter, I could paint a perfect reproduction of the Mona Lisa. It is not creative. Yeah. Full stop. It's not creative. So the question then is, well, what is creativity really? And the thing is that creativity where people get sort of messed up is that it actually is an entire social construct. So for something to be deemed creative, we have to agree that it's creative. And we have a whole system with which we do that. Some of it's capitalists. Right. So, for music, for example, like song sales, music critics, all of those sort of indicators are part of how we indicate that something is creative or not creative. And it doesn't have to be necessarily mainstream. So, you know, there can be a hip artist among a very small group of tastemakers in Brooklyn, but according to that world we would say that's creative now for the larger world to acknowledge its creativity there would have to be some larger validation and we have a bunch of gatekeepers
1: and sort of social well think about nft like you could be sitting on something that was worthless nine months ago now it's 40 million dollars and that's the thing
0: the (laughs) nft thing is such a great example because nfts are decoupling the physical aspect which right like a lot of people have mentioned this is not an original thought but you know, the physical aspect of a painting is maybe 50 bucks, right? The actual frame and the paint. It's everything above that is the sort of social context and dynamics, the scarcity, the story, the narrative, the trend. And NFTs for the first time are dislocating that physical object from all of those things. And that's why they're really powerful. And that makes sense, right? Like everything essentially is a virtual good if you think about it like that, because right. You know, the, the exclusive sneakers are exclusive just from a social construct perspective. It's right. not. Yeah, they're what not. It doesn't
1: make sense. Won't get down this rabbit hole is that it's not truly exclusive like that. Yes, you have a single only copy of this video that is stamped, but the video exists for anyone on YouTube to see anyway. I can make
0: right? this. I go to Google Images and print yeah. the Campbell soup can for Andy Warhol.
1: What's the difference? Right. Yeah, I, I, it's psychology, right? I mean, yeah, it's
0: well. I just think there is no difference, right? Yeah. It's like I mean, think about it. photographers have been doing this for years. Where photograph, fine art photography, you know, they decide how much of it they want to develop. If they have the original film; they could develop more.
1: Correct, but typically, like, there's an understanding that, like, if you do a G clay or something like that, you know, then each one's a thousand dollars versus the one painting is a million dollars, right?
0: Hence, with NFTs, it's the same yeah. argument. It's yeah. like, you know, Beeple is going to produce one of these and 10 of these. And so, you know, theoretically, he could produce more later, but it's that same argument.
1: Correct. He would just yeah. destroy the value of what's out there, right? Which a
0: photographer would also do if they start printing thousands of things they already sold once, you
1: know? Yeah. Uh, no, it is it is interesting. No, I I meant more the like the, the NBA ones where they're like, it's like a, co- like, again, it exists. You could go get it. So it is... Yeah, there's some social construct around it. It is fascinating.
0: I think with NFTs, the interesting thing is that you know if you apply my framework to it, which is there's this whole social sort of dynamic. Like the thing which instrument NFTs that you sort of I think like maybe we would agree on is that the part which is scary is that because the gatekeepers are so disintermediated, like a lot of the gatekeepers in traditional art worlds are what keeps the supply scarce, at least a supply that's sort of meaningful. The yeah. problem is that. You know, in a world where anyone can go on like OpenSea and buy any of these NFTs, it's much harder to understand the sort of signals around what's good. What's what's going to happen
1: next. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so, you know, my thing with NFTs has always been, you know, I think and this is not financial advice, but like I always think from an artistic and a creative perspective, the thing I'm bullish on is that, you know, the name brand NFTs. I think probably have good long-term potential right now. They're pretty expensive, so who knows, but in the same way that watercolor painters, like the name brand watercolor painters have a lot of you know financial potential, but there's so many people who are pretty talented at painting watercolors of yeah. sunsets, right? But we just don't, if you're into art, you're not exposed to those because the galleries aren't showing them and there isn't actually. So that idea of supply and sort of being awash with supply I think is what's sort of scary about NFTs but i think that'll be solved over time by you know obviously christies is doing this now they're auctioning off nfts and they're sort of acting as a credential and so
1: yeah it's going to be fascinating and look it's all it's driven by, you know a lot of people are buying this stuff with their very inflated cryptocurrency so well, totally. you know th- those two things are very very tied very correlated you talked about you know some of the people that you interviewed for the creative curve like i'm i'm curious of the process there how how did you decide who you want to interview and then how did you get them to agree to do
0: it? Yeah. So it was a mix of things. So, you know, basically I made a spreadsheet and I wanted to have sort of a mix of experiences, a mix of industries. You know, I looked for people who had had multiple uh, successes, especially people who had successes across multiple industries that really got me going. That I think is very cool. And I built out a list. I probably had hundreds of names and there was a handful of people who I had sort of a friend of a friend or a friend of a friend of a friend. And then there were some people who I just cold emailed and, you know, they... I guess you have to be
1: creative. So what's your approach to get someone's attention?
0: Yeah. So, you (laughs) know, if you're emailing someone about, hey, I'm writing a book on creative genius, I want to interview, it's not like the worst pitch. Um, And then, you know, once I got the first few names and then I got the book deal, I was able to say, hey, you know, I have A, B, and C, the book's being published by Penguin, you know, and so like over time, and then I got more names and higher... You know, sort of more well-known names. I was able to sort of snowball.
1: Right, then you use those names to get the other names.
0: Yeah, and that's, I mean, the strategy people do when they're launching
1: podcasts or anything, right? right? It's
0: you know, it's sort of social proof and credentialing. So,
1: that's really interesting. Who, who, who did you want that you couldn't get? I guess that's Tim Ferriss's whole book. The you know, he published all the rejections for the um, uh, what's the book of all the advice. Um, uh, Tools of Titans. Yeah, he took yeah. all the people who rejected his request, and turn and and looked at what they all had in common—the rejections. And, but so it was really interesting. But That's who, cool. who did you want that you didn't get?
0: Um, I've always wanted to interview Martine Rothblatt. She is the co-founder of SiriusXM and United Therapeutics, which for a while I think was one of the most valuable biotech companies. She's yeah. she's trans. She transitioned in between Sirius and United, and. She's just been so successful at everything she's done. And she's also one of the most sort of visible, you know, transgender CEOs in America.
1: And she's very hard to interview. Like I've not been able to make that happen. And so, well, it's interesting. I, I think as you say, the timing, thing. it sounds like, look, anyone can strike gold once, right? But I think if they're doing it two or three times in your mind, there's a repeatable process there.
0: Yeah, it's hard to get that lucky multiple times. And, you know, I always think about that maxim that I might mess up that, you know, when I'm successful, it's skill. When you're successful, it's yeah. luck. <laughs> and, you know, I think if you've been successful once, there's a world where sometimes it's luck. I know some yeah. people who have been lucky. When you're successful twice or three times, or I know some people have been successful more than that. Like, you know, I interviewed Andrew Ross Sorkin in my book, and, you know, yeah. he's this, the anchor on Squawk Box, but he also co-created the show Billions. He wrote the book
1: Too Big to Fail. I did not realize he did billions. That's oh crazy. yeah. He
0: was the co-creator. He you know writes this incredibly popular column. So he's journalist, TV anchor, you know, TV producer, you know, essentially narrative nonfiction writer. And he's great at all of them. That to me, that's why I wanted to interview him. That was just like, okay, clearly he has some method of learning or something, which he does actually, that allows him to do this. And that was really fascinating to me.
1: That's uh, that's really interesting. They're all in the same realm, but as you were saying, but they're all kind of different versions of it.
0: Yeah, people spend their whole careers trying to be good at one of those
1: things, you know. Well, we got a lot of business owners, leaders, entrepreneurs uh, listening to the show. So let let's talk about like creativity at work. Like, uh, you know, one of the justifications of the open open office concept was that it would foster all this innovation and creativity. I think the data is out that what it's all done is just create a ton of distraction and no, you know, quiet time. So what, what, instead of, you know, a Dilbert open office space, like what, what are the real things that managers and leaders can do to create more creativity within an organization?
0: Yeah, I think it depends on obviously the types of teams, the types of work you do, you know, but I think the big thing that we're learning is essentially sort of variation of space, both on a sort of. Horizontal level, but also by team. So, you know, in sales, if you have an inside sales team, you probably do want an open office. There's something about the social pressure of everyone else working and the sort of buzz of the phones that can be really invigorating. If you have your design team, you do not want to have that, or you want to have multiple spaces—spaces spaces where they can get away, where they can work quietly, where they can you know pull a room to do collaboration. And so, you know, I think the sort of obvious sort of next step of the sort of COVID office world. Is spaces that are very flexible. So, you know, maybe you have some hoteling, but you have quiet rooms, you have conference rooms, you have you know rooms or collaboration
1: are, rooms, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. Or rooms that people book for half a day at a time instead of an hour at a time. And so I generally think the idea of a very flexible office is both the sort of right business decision, but also from a creativity perspective, I think just more mirrors how creativity works, where there's a lot of time you need silence. There's a lot of time where you do need to talk to other people. Maybe you need to do research or interviews or collaborate. So I think that's all very important. And then the other thing is that I think a lot of people have their own internal creative myth. So they sort of have contextualized creativity and maybe they say, well, I'm not as talented as Steve Jobs, so I'm not creative, right? I'm not that person. I can't do everything. And a lot of people have these stories, and I think a lot of times they start in childhood, Where they say I'm not good enough. That's not me. And I think from a coaching perspective, a lot of times I think that's an element where you can really coach people out of that. Because if you talk to someone and say, "Why do you think that?" You know, first they'll probably like, "I don't know." No, 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 really. Like, why do you think that? Very quickly you'll start to hear a story. You know, my English teacher, you know, told me I wasn't a good writer, or my mom told me that you know artists are poor. Like, whatever. And I think you can start to tease that out. And once you understand the root of any negative self-talk, it's usually a lot easier than to sort of help to contextualize it and be like, well, actually that's not true, right? I always think with writing, it's so funny because you know the greatest writers I know edit a ton, they have copy editors, they're highly iterative, but we have this idea that you need to be able to sit down in front of a computer, write a perfect you know, 10,000 word essay, basically on a first blush. And that's the way you're deemed a talented writer. Professional writers don't work like that right. at all. So yeah. we have these weird notions.
1: Well, it's also, I think when you work with bosses or in workplaces, these people now coming out of school, the bubble fillers, you know, as I call them now. So they're used to right answer. When you th- think about the answers that are usually presented in, in the workplace. So I'll just come up with a hypothetical one. Like, cause this is what I see every day. Let's, let's pretend we're having a dispute with a client over... Ten thousand dollars, right? Whether overcharge. Typically, what someone would escalate to me or lead you know, otherwise, like so. Our options are: we don't credit them. We credit the ten thousand dollars. Or then there's always C, which is split the baby, right? Mm-hmm. Or you know, we it's five thousand dollars. We we call it five thousand dollars. Like I, I feel like those solutions are almost presented in the way that like there's usually two trained. options, yeah, yes. and then the the sort of you know middle one when. Not even like, what else? Could, whoa, well, what, what if else we can we do? Yeah, what, yeah. Could we do a make good project
0: or could we do something else? Right, they,
1: could they extend their agreement for a year and we'll yeah. credit it for $1,000 over a month? It's just the way that these finite options are presented is actually part of the problem versus asking an open-ended question. People come in and seem to say, these are the options that we have, not how else could we do this? Yeah,
0: I, I totally agree. And it, you know, this is why I think when you look at, you talk to a lot of hiring managers There's sort of a bit of a backlash against people who are maybe like traditional high performers that have gone sort of traditional sort of routes where a lot of times if you're hiring someone, you know, there's a bit of a skepticism sometimes that those people are going to have the flexibility, the dexterity, the grit to actually sort of think on their feet. And so you also see this with a lot of people after they leave an Ivy League school where they have usually in the sort of like early to mid 20s. They have this weird thing happen, which anyone here has gone to an Ivy League school would like resonate with. I haven't, but I have a lot of friends who did. And they have this like moment where they're like, wait, at age, age teen, I was sort of told I'd won, right? I had gone to Harvard. I gone to Yale. That was my entire childhood was leading up to that. I was crowned, right? And then I went there and I said, all these other people who were crowned. And we were told
1: that- Someone's got to be in the 25th percentile, Yeah, right?
0: like, and we're going to be the elite of the elite. We're going to help, you know, fix the world. Then I was 22, and the only jobs that wanted to hire me were at an associate or an analyst or an entry-level position. Like, everyone else went to all these other schools. What? I'm not going to be a CEO? And they have this weird sort of recontextualization that goes on, which some of them, it takes them years to sort of get comfortable with, where at the end of the day, a lot of that stuff, no one cares, right? It's it's obviously useful if you can get into Harvard, you should definitely go to Harvard, full yeah. stop, period. You should always, if you get, if you get invited, I always joke like, you know, if you get invited in to the club, you should probably go
1: to the club. It, except that, look, you and I both deal in the marketing world. We see a lot of marketing leaders, very rarely, like oh yeah, elite, I mean, almost you at, never elite schools marked are marketing people, right?
0: Totally. If you look at CEOs, CMOs, VPs, like yeah, there's just it's not really correlated, and so yeah. you know, I think that's an interesting, particularly
1: thing. like almost particularly marketing, yeah, because I think it is like. <laughs> creative nonconformist, conformist like all, all of these constraints qualities. yeah totally really interesting all right well la- last question i always like to ask what's what's a mistake you've made uh personally or professionally that you learn the most from
0: oh geez um i mean i make so many mistakes you know like constantly
1: it can, it, it, again it can be a theme
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i think i've gotten better at this but For a long time, this affected both my personal life and my professional life. I would come to a decision and not bring people along the way. And I think this is actually a pretty common thing that I see people who are promoted into management stumble with. And you know, I started my company. I didn't, it was sort of my first, not quite, but it was basically my first job out of college. And so I didn't have that sort of like management maturation that a lot of people have. And so I didn't realize that I was doing or I was, like, well, this is the, the right answer. So we're gonna do that. And you have to bring people along for the sort of decision making the journey because A, a lot of times your decisions are wrong, and B, because no one wants to just be told what to do. And so I think both in my personal life and my professional life, that was sort of if I had to think about the biggest mistake in my 20s from an interpersonal dynamic, it was not being great at bring other people along for the thinking. And that's something I think I'm better at now and could always get even better at. But I think that's that's been a really valuable lesson because once I got better at that, I found that people wanted to work with me more. I would have better friendships, better romantic relationships, like all that kind of stuff. And so um, I think that would be probably the biggest thematic one.
1: That is a very good leadership learning <laughs> for, for many folks who who probably resonate with that. So Alan, where can people learn more about you, your work, and your book Yeah. So you go to alan, A-L-L-E-N
0: dot X-Y-Z and there's links to books, newsletter, all the
1: good stuff. All right. Thanks for uh, stopping by to chat with us today. I'm glad glad we made it happen. Thanks, bud. See you later. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in for the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Alan and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review as it helps new users discover the show. If you're on iTunes, all you got to do is scroll down right now, as I'm saying it, to the library icon, uh, hit rating and review, and it takes a second. Thank you again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating.